We're in Acts chapter 8, and we're going to look at roughly the first half of Acts chapter 8 this morning. This is a, a major transition point in the book of Acts. If you think about what we have seen so far in Acts, it has primarily been focused on Jewish people in and around Jerusalem. The church was born out of Jewish believers in Jesus Christ who embraced him as their Messiah, who were there in Jerusalem where the gospel was being preached. And then just a little bit, we've seen some of that spread to the region right around Jerusalem into some of the, the, the nearby towns. That is about to change. In Acts chapter 8, the gospel is crossing ethnic lines, and that is a major moment in Luke's account of how the church grew. If you think about where we finished last week, if you were with us in chapter 7, it was the first record of a believer in Jesus Christ being killed for his or her faith, and that is the, the man named Stephen, who is a Greek-speaking Jew. We were introduced to him in chapter 6 as one of the seven who helped serve food to the widows. A mob became enraged by Stephen's proclamation of Jesus as being the Messiah, and they, um, they went after him. They condemned him because in his speaking, he spoke to them of the condemnation of rejecting Jesus Christ because they, they, they did not embrace him, and they betrayed, as Stephen describes it, they betrayed and murdered the righteous one, the one that God had sent, the, the anointed Messiah, and they killed Christ, and now because Stephen is proclaiming that, they make up false accusations against him, accuse him of blasphemy, and then they kill him. That's where we left off in chapter 7. So let me read now Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 1, and we'll go all the way through verse 25. It says, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. 
You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. There's two main things that I want us to see this morning as we walk through this passage. The one is more of a theological point that is discussed often when we come to this section of Acts chapter 8. It's in verses 14 through 17, and it is the the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the fact that that outpouring is delayed. There is belief in Christ, and there is an interim of time, and then there is the pouring out of the Spirit. And this one raises some questions, and it even causes some divisions within Christianity concerning the the baptism of the Spirit, the indwelling of the Spirit. The other one is in verses 4 and 5, and then again in verse 5, and, and that is what became one of the church's first and foremost priorities in the face of persecution, and, and I think there's something for us to learn as we see that as well. But, but just to make sure we get the overall flow of the story, the, the mob has murdered Stephen. They are clearly not satisfied. In fact, it, it is as if they have tasted blood because they now begin this violent rampage. Verse 1 says there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. There is this massive outpouring of violence The persecutors, as the passage describes to us, even begin to go house to house to try to find other believers in Jesus Christ and to throw them in prison or at minimum expel them, get them out of Jerusalem. And so this persecution begins. And a consequence of it is then the believers are scattered. They are forced to flee Jerusalem and leave everything behind just to save their lives. Many of them fled north, about 40 miles or so, to Samaria. And it might be hard to see, but if on that map, if you see it on your screen, you'll see two red dots. One is Jerusalem, which would have been the capital of uh, Judea, the southern region. And the other one is the dot there in the middle of Samaria, which is the, the town roughly known as the town of Samaria. It had went by other names as well, but this is the, the capital area. You see the regions, Judea and Samaria, about 40 miles of a distance when they left Jerusalem and they fled. Some of them began to go up into Samaria. Now, Let's do a little refresher on the Samaritan people because that relationship between Jews and Samaritans was tense at at its best. If you go back in Old Testament history to when Solomon was king, Saul and David and Solomon, it is a united kingdom, a cohesive nation of Israel that are descendants of the sons of Jacob. They are tribes that are assigned various portions of land, but it is one nation, all known as Israel. And then Solomon's son, Rehoboam, comes into power comes up with this heavy taxation policy. The northern part of Israel decides to secede, to no longer be a part of the same nation and to get out from under Rehoboam's leadership. And so that's when this north-south division begins. And the northern kingdom maintains the name of Israel. The southern kingdom becomes Judah. Northern kingdom sets up its own capital in Shechem, where it has its own king over Israel. And the southern kingdom of Judah has its own king and line of kings in Jerusalem. Eventually, the northern kingdom is taken out by an enemy army. The Assyrians 
come in in 722 BC, and, and they not only displace the people, they not only take over the land, but their tactic was to repopulate a land. They, they, they overcame a number of nations, Israel being one of them, and they would take the population from that nation and move it geographically to someplace else and essentially mix people up so that languages and cultures would be mixed up, and that would ultimately weaken the people. They wouldn't be strong, cohesive nations anymore. They would be all multi-ethnic groups who were just trying to learn each other's language and, and, and figure out how to work together. And so the land in the northern part that was once Jewish, that was once under the banner of Israel, is now a land of mixed-race people who no longer have any necessary ties to Judaism. A couple centuries later, the southern kingdom of Judah goes through the same experience of being taken into captivity, but they were allowed to come back. They were allowed to repopulate Judah. Even though the land had been left desolate for decades, they ultimately were allowed to return. And so by about the 4th century B.C., you have what then, instead of Israel and Judah now, is Samaria and Judea. You have got these two different areas, two different ethnic groups. Judea is the, the southern region focused on Jerusalem, um, largely following the traditions of the Old Testament and, and traditional Jewish beliefs and worship and practice. Samaria is to the north. They built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. They have their own beliefs, sort of a syncretism of, of some of Judaism mixed in with other beliefs, their own expectations of a Messiah. The Samaritans also understand that they are looked down upon by the Jews. They are looked at with disdain. They, they are not particularly fond of the Jewish people either, but they understand that from the Jewish mind, the Samaritans have no claim on the Jewish Messiah, that they are, are people who are, have nothing to do with them as far as the Jews are concerned in Jerusalem. And so to put it mildly, by the time the church is born, at the time of Christ, there is great tension between Judea, and Samaria, between the Jews and the Samaritans. That's what makes this story all the more remarkable, is that Philip, in, in fleeing, uh, Philip is, we were introduced to him in, in chapter 6. He's one of the seven, one of the, the Hellenistic Jews who were taking part in providing for the widows and providing food for the widows. Philip, as he flees, now with other believers, fans out into Samaria and begins to proclaim the gospel. We have to assume that, that Philip has heard some of the teaching of Jesus. Maybe he even saw and heard some of it himself. Maybe he picked it up from the apostles. But he, he already knows perhaps some of what Jesus' dealing has been with Samaritans, that Jesus went to a village in Samaria, the, the story of the woman at the well in John chapter 4, and the, the fact of her faith, and then she goes back to her village, and there is widespread belief in Jesus in this village in Samaria. The fact that, that Jesus uses a Samaritan to illustrate one of the, the greatest stories we think of in the life of Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 10 when he's asked the question of, of what it means to love your neighbor, what that looks like, and he uses what we call the story of the Good Samaritan, somebody who the Jews would have considered an opponent, somebody they were probably hostile to, is now used as the model of what it means to love neighbor. So culturally, it, it seems entirely radical for Philip to go proclaiming Christ in Samaria, but by God's design, this is entirely in keeping with his plan. This is what Jesus did. This is what Jesus forecast. And in fact, if you think back to the very beginning of the book of Acts, 
And the commission to the church, Acts 1.8, is that you are to be witnesses of mine when you receive the Holy Spirit. When the power of the Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, the city, in Judea, the region, and then in all of Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so in God's design, in Jesus' commission, the plan from the start is that the gospel will move out in sort of ever-widening circles And ultimately, that will encompass Samaria. We are seeing that. That's what Acts chapter 8 is about. It is God in his sovereign will taking persecution of his church and using it to move believers into an area in which they might not have ordinarily, voluntarily gone. And now they are forced there and they are proclaiming Jesus Christ. I want to come back to that and that priority of proclamation in just a couple minutes. But but let's just... Finish thinking about how this account works out. Verses 5 through 8 tell us Philip is performing signs. As he is preaching Christ, he is also performing these supernatural signs. If there was ever a setting that warranted supernatural signs, this was it. We've seen from the Gospel of John, from the beginning of Acts, Jesus does signs as a way, one, of, of getting people's attention. They're attracted to that. They want to see what he's doing. And so they're drawn to that. And people who are sick are drawn to him for healing. But it's also for validation for the apostles. The signs and wonders are the the confirmation that as they go to new places where there are other preachers, other speakers, other religious sort of folks who have said and done things, by doing signs and wonders, casting out demons, healing the lame and the paralyzed, they are showing the power of God. And so they are validating their preaching as being from God. And so that is vital here because, first of all, he's going to Samaria where there's probably already some standoffishness toward a ethnic Jew who's coming to preach about the Messiah. They're not exactly ready to embrace that, and yet By the signs and the preaching, they're drawn to him. And so they now will give an ear where they might not have otherwise. And and there's also in the same city, there's this magician. There's this guy named Simon who has done illusions and who has drawn crowds previously. And so they've seen stuff before. The difference now with Philip is this is far more inexplicable. This is far more supernatural to the point that it tells us in this passage that even Simon himself was amazed at the things Philip had done. Even despite all of his trickery and magic, he could not emulate these things. Philip was healing people. And and, and so he goes into this place. God empowers him to do things that only God can do. And it is for the, the purpose now of validating that Philip is truly sent by God to proclaim God's truth. Simon is introduced to us. He's an interesting character. At some level, Simon is sort of a precursor of false teachers that we will see mentioned throughout the New Testament. More often than not, uh, when, when the New Testament talks about false teachers, it, it, it often couples them with greed, with an ambition for personal gain or money. The New Testament addresses false teaching. Um, one of the places is 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's a clear warning. The chapter begins with a clear warning about false teaching. And then Paul transitions into talking about greed and contentment and the need for contentment. He says in 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wanted wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And so in 1 Timothy 6, 
He's talking about false teaching, but he's also tying it to the fact that they lack contentment, they want more, and out of greed, they, they do things that are not in keeping with sound doctrine, and they, they carry out false doctrines. 2 Peter 2 also warns of false teachers with destructive heresies, and it says, in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. And so, again, they're, they're false teaching that is motivated by sensuality and greed. They want stuff. The, the, the immediate obvious difference between Philip and Simon is, is that Simon is desperately seeking attention for himself. Simon likes the idea that they are calling him the great one, and, and, and he maybe is even portraying himself as perhaps that Samaritan sort of savior. So he draws attention to himself with his illusions. Philip is drawing attention to Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. Philip is all about pointing this back to God, not to self. He wants them to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Yes, it's important that they see these signs and they verify this is of God. It's more important, though, that they hear and believe about Jesus, and they do. Many of them believe, it says. Many in this city respond. What became of Simon, we don't know. Whether or not he became a true believer is, is somewhat ambiguous in the text. Luke does tell us that he believed and that he was baptized but it also tells us then that when the Holy Spirit then came, when the outpouring of the Holy Spirit happened, Simon sort of relapses into his old ways of looking for new illusions for people to follow. Uh, in, in, instead of recognizing, instead of understanding that God sovereignly distributes his spirit to his people, it's God who pours out his spirit, it's God who's sovereign over that, Simon sort of envisions the giving of the Spirit as kind of like a franchise that he could buy into. You know, you guys from Jerusalem, you've come up and done that. I can, I can be your distribution guy here in Samaria. If I can buy into this, then I can lay hands on people and I can, I can draw the attention for giving this gift. And you see Peter just swiftly rebukes him in verse 20. May your silver perish with you because you thought that you could, that you thought somehow this was about money. You thought spiritual things somehow had to do with gain in, in terms of finances. And he says to him, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Peter urges Simon to repent of his wickedness and to seek forgiveness. We're, we're encouraged by this because it reminds us that God is a forgiving God. And Peter is proclaiming him as such and says to Simon, repent and ask for forgiveness. But even when we see Simon's Statement in verse 24, even there, it sounds more like a get me out of this mess, kind of pray to the Lord that nothing of what you've said may come upon me. Get, get me out of these consequences. There, there's, not a, there's not a sense of grief for his sin, a sense of what he has done wrong. It's more of a fear of, of what could come upon him. But in the midst of this story is, is verses 14 to 17. That's just where I want to spend just a couple minutes on just the theological question that this section raises. It says again, verse 14, when the apostles at Jerusalem, roughly 40 miles away, heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but that they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they, that Peter and John, laid their hands on them, that is the Samaritan believers, and they received the Holy Spirit. So word goes back to Jerusalem. When it says they go down, we always look at this and we look at the map and think Samaria is up, but everything is down from Jerusalem. It's just the, the biblical direction of things. Jerusalem is always considered going up to, and everything from there goes down from there. And so they go down to Samaria. 
There's three descriptions in Acts of, of, that, of the pouring out of the Spirit that all have some similarity to them. There's, there's the initial account in Acts chapter 2 that we've looked at, the day of Pentecost, as you'll recall, where the Holy Spirit is poured out on the, the believers, the Jewish believers. There's this in Acts chapter 8, which is people believing, but then receiving the Spirit later. Similar in Acts chapter 2, because they were, they were already believers, they'd already trusted in Christ, and they were waiting for the Spirit to come. Here in Acts chapter 8, the Samaritans are in a place where they perhaps don't even fully understand what they are waiting for, but the Spirit then comes subsequently. And then in chapter 10, some similarity in the terms of the pouring out is it's Peter in Caesarea, and this is the first conversion, God's first saving of Gentiles. And in that instance, in Acts chapter 10, the coming of the Spirit on those believers has some looks that seem similar to chapter 2 in Pentecost. It's reminiscent in some way of the pouring out of the Spirit to, to the point in chapter 10 that some Jewish believers who went with Peter to Caesarea are now watching these Gentiles who have come to faith, and they're seeing the Spirit poured out, and they are amazed, it says in chapter 10. And Peter then says that the Gentile believers need to be baptized because that's faith and repentance and therefore you are baptized. And he says, because they received the Spirit just as we have in Acts 10, 47. The, the, the Spirit that has come upon them was the same Spirit who came upon us. The, the point is, each one of these accounts of the coming of the Holy Spirit are sort of a a first in class, a first in category, if you will. It is first the Holy Spirit coming upon Jewish believers. And that's new because it's now the Spirit, God's Spirit, coming into and dwelling in and empowering people. And so these Jewish believers have followed Jesus. They have been commissioned by Jesus. He has ascended into heaven and they are waiting in Jerusalem. And then on Pentecost, the Spirit comes in power and comes upon them. And then, then you have in Acts 8, the Samaritans, and finally the Gentiles. It's hard for us to, to fully grasp how dramatic, how shocking each of these are. The first, the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost, the, the tongues of fire and the rushing of the wind and the ability to speak in languages was all intended to display that Jesus Christ, who has ascended, is now with you and in you, and his power is now working through you. This, this coming of this spirit that is altogether new for the people of God in the sense of now coming and indwelling them forevermore, it is done in a dramatic way to help them see that and to convey the fullness of the spirit. In the same way, even more shocking is that the Samaritans those people, as the Jews would have looked at them, those half-breeds at best, the Gentiles, those who were truly on the opposite side of the fence from the Jews, now receive the same spirit in the same measure that is almost impossible for them to fathom. This is the spread of the gospel. This is the, the Messiah who came, not just for his people, no longer just the Messiah for the Jews. He is the savior of the world. And so what we're seeing here is how all who believe in him now receive this spirit. And so in each of these scenes, one of the consistent threads is Peter. In Acts 2, in Acts 8, Acts 10, he has this leading role amongst the apostles. And, and, and what each of these scenes makes clear is that Peter is there to witness 
the gospel crossing ethnic lines. It is the gospel moving into a new place and a new people, first to the Samaritans, then to the Gentiles. God is determined to make it clear to his people that these two people groups, Samaritans, Gentiles, when we get to that in Acts chapter 10, are not second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. They are not just those who have sort of been added in and always maintain sort of a secondary status. They are given the fullness of the Spirit and they are joined with their Jewish brethren into the body of Christ. The, the outpouring of the Spirit in Samaria does not happen at the instance of conversion because God intentionally delays it so that Peter and John, who are in Jerusalem, could go and witness it. We should just note it... it, it told us early in this persecution that the apostles remained in Jerusalem. It doesn't say specifically why they did. We would presume it's one of maybe two reasons or a combination of both. One is that, the, that they were sort of high profile, very much as we've seen that the Jewish council, the religious leaders, wouldn't get too strong in their persecution of guys like Peter and John because they understood that they, they would be seen and they were known in the community. So they might have had some sort of insulation in all of this by virtue of their standing. And the other thing that we can presume is this outbreak of persecution has started primarily amongst the Hellenist Jews. And we talked about them early on in chapter 6, those who had moved back into the area or from lands elsewhere. And so it, it, it seems to be, at least initially, a largely persecution against more of the Hellenistic Jews, although it certainly will cross all sorts of lines. The, the, the point being, though, Philip's gone to Samaria, preached the gospel, people believe, word is sent back to Jerusalem, and Peter and John are then sent to Samaria to see this. They are going there to see God's saving work so that there is no second guessing it. That's why it's Peter who goes to Caesarea in Acts chapter 10, so that there's no question that the gospel has now been embraced by Gentiles. It needed to be made clear once and for all that there could be no ethnic dividing walls in the body of Christ. And, and, and that's the, the, the clarity with which God does this work of the Spirit is to make it clear that we all come on the same basis, sinners desperately in need of grace, needing to believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. We are saved by the same Spirit. We are indwelt by the fullness of the same Spirit. That is what happens at Pentecost. It is now what we're seeing in chapter 8, and then we'll see it with the Gentiles in chapter 10. So Acts 8 is not trying to teach as doctrine that here is the normal pattern that you believe in Jesus Christ, and then there's sort of this interim period where you don't have the fullness of the Spirit and you wait to receive it, and then the Spirit finally, someone lays hands on you or, or you earnestly seek it or something, and then you get the Spirit. Just as Acts 2 was not trying to establish that sort of pattern. These are unique, somewhat shocking, transitional moments in the early life of the church. This is to instruct about the coming of the Spirit and now to show the coming of the Spirit to other ethnic groups. And so the, the, the sort of second blessing theology, as it's often known amongst many charismatics, wants to try to make this the norm for believers of all time, that you, you repent, you believe, and then you go into a period of earnestly seeking, desiring the Spirit, and then hopefully you're baptized in the Spirit, and then you show some evidence, maybe speaking in tongues or something like that. 
would submit to you, first of all, there's nothing of that here in the Samaritans. There's no, they, they don't know what they're missing at this point. They're still learning this. There's no seeking or desiring on their part. It, it, it is simply that God delays this so that the apostles could see it and the evidence could be there. When, when we were back in Acts 2, I mentioned to you then, I just as a refresher, Romans 8, 9, which teaches very clearly about this and the, the spirit and the connection of the spirit with believers says, you, however, are not in the flesh. It's either you're in the flesh or you're in the Spirit of God. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Scripture does not envision sort of an interim phase of, I'm a believer, but I don't yet have the Spirit. We receive the Spirit as believers now at the moment of salvation, at that moment of conversion, of regeneration, is the, the work of the Spirit. And so there's no, there's no instruction here in Acts that says this is, this is what you got to do and this is how you have to wait. The Spirit was visibly poured out on Pentecost to show the life-changing power and presence of the Spirit of God and now to the Samaritans in a way to show the apostles that what you're seeing here is what you saw at Pentecost. Same thing. The Spirit was poured out in such a way that the apostles could give witness to it and could know that these Samaritan believers were genuine believers who were genuine brothers and sisters in Christ who all partook of the same spirit. Paul, years later, writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is a letter written to a church that's in all sorts of trouble. They're dealing with all kinds of sin and immaturity and struggling. There's new believers, there's young believers, and yet in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul says, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews, Greeks, slave, free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Again, just to reemphasize the point, what scripture teaches is that it is at regeneration, at salvation, that we receive the fullness of the spirit. Paul did not say, the reason some of you guys are struggling with this immaturity and the sin is because you're still waiting for the spirit. He said, you all were baptized into one body. You all have drank of the same spirit. We as a body have received the fullness of the Holy Spirit. All right, one, one last thing. I just want to make sure that we see in this passage before we leave this part of Acts chapter 8. I need to put this in context. We've talked some theological stuff and some Simon and magic and signs and wonders and all that stuff, and I, and I just want to remind you again to frame what we're reading here in the context of how this chapter opened. At the start of this chapter... A kind, gracious, wise, honorable, humble servant of Jesus Christ. What, what little we've been told about Stephen has told us even his countenance was appealing to people around. There was just something about this guy that, that showed the spirit, that showed wisdom, that showed integrity, that showed kindness. And this chapter opens with him having been brutally executed, and verse 2 describing that devout men who are overwhelmed with sadness are burying him. Verse 2 says, Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. They are, they are openly grieving and weeping. They are appalled at what has happened to him. And, and I would point out to you that word devout does not demand 
that we translate that as believers in Jesus Christ. The word devout is just the idea of faithful people. So, so this could well also be other Jews who had not yet come to faith in Christ, but who had worshipped in synagogue with Stephen and had known Stephen for a long time and who were just as shocked and appalled by what they had witnessed that this this mob had taken over and falsely accused Stephen, came up with, with false charges and claimed blasphemy and in a rage destroyed his life. And here is a guy who is exceptionally likable, who is, who is merely appealing to people to believe in Jesus. Stephen loved God and he loved people and yet they schemed and lied in order to claim that he did something he did not do and when they could bear his preaching no more, they grabbed him violently and took him outside the city and murdered him. In, in that moment, we would like to think that somehow, some way, that, that mob would sort of collectively come to its senses and take a breath and pause and realize that this was horrible and grotesque and that they would stop, and yet the reality is the enemies of Christ acted as if they had drawn first blood, and they were ready to go after every Christian they could at this point. Because what Stephen said stood for all of them, and now they wanted to destroy Christians, people who had done nothing wrong. The word persecute means to pursue with hostility. The, the aim is to do violence, it is to hurt, to harm. It is to, at minimum, force to flee. It is to chase something like an animal to, to get rid of it so that it can never come around again. When it says that those early believers were scattered, same word that's used in the agricultural setting of a farmer and seed, just scattering, tossing the seed out, and that's, that's the picture. Suddenly, this Christian community has known the threat was there, and, and now it is hit. They are now a hunted and persecuted people. And as this violence erupts, we're, we're seeing one man in particular who's beginning to ascend to sort of a role of leadership. He's introduced to us at the end of chapter 7 as standing by, sort of as a spectator, holding the garments of those who are the, the outer coats of, of those who were killing Stephen. And now he's beginning to step forward. Now chapter 8 tells us he approves of this. While some were cringing in shock at what had just happened to Stephen, Saul is nodding his head in approval and is now determined to believe that Stephen deserved to die that way and in fact, Christianity must be wiped out. That all those who believe like him, all who would preach that Jesus is the Messiah and that those who murdered Jesus actually turned against God's righteous one, all those who preach this must be stopped and must suffer. And verse 3 says Saul was ravaging the church. A word for ravaging typically has the idea of a wild animal and its prey, just pulling apart the, the flesh of what it's eating. And, and in fact, it's a, it's a tense so to just demonstrate that this is, this is Paul's ongoing mindset at this point. He is in the process in his mind of annihilating the church, destroying the body of those who follow Christ. And he is pursuing them with a vengeance to the point that he is going house to house actually going into people's homes and trying to find people who would identify with Christ and dragging them out, male or female, mom, dad, whatever it is, dragging them out and throwing them into prison in order to persecute them. He is destroying homes all for the 
pursuit of ending the gospel. That's what came upon the church. That's what's going on when Acts 8 begins. Sudden, painful, terrible outburst of unjust violence that forces people to leave everything and flee for their lives. And then verse 4 says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching, that is, proclaiming the good news. Those, those who were pursued, those who were forced to flee, those who left everything, who were literally being terrorized, were proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ as they went. What man fully intended as being the act by which the church would be destroyed, God meant for the purpose of furthering the reach of his gospel. God is just enlarging the circle and giving to the believing community more fields that are ready for harvest. This whole section is bookended by verse 25, where Luke concludes and says, Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, this would be now Peter and John, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. And so the gospel just continues to spread. That word um, that, that is translated as preaching, in verse 4, verse 25, preaching is a, a fine translation of it. It, it. it has the idea of proclaiming good news, speaking good news is literally what it is. It's a different word from 2 Timothy 4 when Paul says, preach the word, keruso, proclaim the word, preach the word. And, and I say all that just to make the point that when we see that word preach, there's, there's a temptation sometimes to, to say that that's the, that's the pulpit, that's the pastoral work, that's the elders, that's the, that's the preaching. That, that's not what the word means. It, it is speaking of Philip and others who were proclaiming good news, who were spreading good news. And so here in Acts, Luke is telling us that the believers who were being hunted down were taking the opportunity to speak to testify, to proclaim, to tell others the good news about Jesus Christ, that becomes priority number one for them. As they are running for their lives, they are still speaking about Christ. Their response to tragedy and suffering and violence and injustice is to call people to repent and believe. If you think back to chapter 4, when the threat of persecution first started to look serious, Peter and John called before the religious council and they're told, you either shut up or we're going to make life really hard on you. And if you remember in Acts chapter 4, the apostles gather together and the body gathers and it says they gathered together as one in prayer. And in Acts 4.29, God grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. When the threat first began, the prayer was, God, you take note of the threat. You look upon the threat. You are just, and we trust you. Give us boldness to speak. God is answering that prayer here in chapter 8. In that horrific moment, they believed God was giving them an even larger platform from which to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me be really clear here. It doesn't say that preaching Christ was the only thing they did. 
We already know that they shared their possessions with one another in order to help those who were struggling, that they were selling property, that they were giving money, that they were coming alongside one another and sharing from their wealth. They fed the poor. They loved others. As they went out into unreached lands, they, they cared for the sick and, and, and those who could, who were empowered by God, performed acts of healing on those who were sick. There's this sort of odd, troubling discussion in evangelical social media these days that's almost, almost trying to pit preaching of the gospel against acts of service, as if it's either or. We're either going to do one or the other, as if we're only capable of either preaching the gospel or speaking up for justice. Folks, we have the capacity to do more than one thing at a time. We as individual believers and even as a church have the ability to do more than one thing, and we should. The early church did incredible works of service. This, this is, the church is exploding in growth. It is under severe persecution, and yet they are doing wonderful deeds of caring for one another and serving one another, and they're doing it without smartphones and without reminder notifications, and so this isn't either or. We can only do one. We can't do the other. That's not true. But when it comes to priorities, the thing they could not and would not forsake is proclaiming Christ. That was the thing that they had to do and couldn't lose along the way. If we lose the proclamation of the gospel, then we have nothing to offer ultimately. It's because the worst the worst suffering in this life does not compare to the agony of the eternal wrath of God for those who enter eternity separated from him, who leave life apart from the saving grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why, above all else, we speak the good news of the gospel, the hope of Jesus Christ as Savior. And we do so knowing that in the end there is only one just one, one whose ways are perfect, one who is ultimately victorious over all evil and who will reign and put all things under his feet and all will be made right and all who are trusting him will share in his just and glorious eternal reign. We believe that. That's why no matter what is happening in the world, no matter what is happening in your life, we proclaim the good news of the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this example from the early church of the passion with which they carried the gospel, of the, the clear conviction that it was the singular, most life-changing message, the thing that people had to hear and had to know, not only for peace and reconciliation in this life, but for all of eternity. Father, may we, your church, Grace Bible Church, as brothers and sisters in Christ, may we hold fast to this word, believing as we've seen today that there are no ethnic divides in the body of Christ that we have come together as one people saved by grace, redeemed by the work of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters. May we live out. It's like we see in someone like Stephen. Someone who is occupied with serving and caring for widows and making sure that they were not neglected. 
but who also took every opportunity he could to speak of Christ, to to tell a lost world that, that this is where hope is found, in Jesus Christ. Pray for anyone listening today who is not trusting in Jesus Christ alone as Savior. Today, Father, would you do the work that only your Spirit could do to to bring them to embrace Jesus Christ as the sinless Savior who gave his life on the cross as a ransom for sinners. May you bring them to, to faith and trust in him. Empower us this week. Remind us, Father, that even though Sometimes we look at these things in Acts and we think that they've, they've seen so much and they've been the beneficiaries of, of, of seeing miraculous signs. We, we have seen your work in our own lives. We have your work. Remind us that the, the same Spirit came upon his people in Acts 2 and Acts 8 and Acts 10 over and over again. We drink of the same fullness of the Spirit. We are empowered in the same way for the presence and power of Jesus Christ in our lives. Help us with that to serve you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.